from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the challenges of diversity in sustainability leadership, why McDonald's and United Airlines are moving downtown, how CO2 can save us, and Bill Gates' billion-dollar bet. We're talking real money this week on 350. It's December 16th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, is my friend and Green Biz senior writer, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? It's going good. You know, this is our last podcast of 2016. We're going to lay low a little bit and, you know, do other things for the holidays. Um, so, yeah. you staring ready? Down, I don't know. I'm staring down this trip to New England to see family. Oh, yeah. Got to go dig out some warm clothes. But Yeah. Uh, is there, uh, I'm not sure it's a polar vortex, but there's definitely a, a major chill going on over there. So, I'm happy to report that I will be holding down the fort in relatively balmy California. You know, it's, it's not going to be a s- slow holidays. The holidays, for those who want to, peek behind the scenes of green business always pretty busy time as best we can while still you know spending time with family and holidays we're not lying too low because we've got the state of green business reports coming out on january 31st our 10th annual edition of that report we've got Green Biz 17 coming up in February. We've got the usual array of podcasts. And as always, we're, we're thinking about our next three events and working on. So it's, we're not just working on Green Biz in February. We're working on Verge Hawaii for June and Verge back at the Santa Clara Convention Center in September. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a busy week, a busy few <laughs> weeks. And uh, before we get back into the thick of it on January 3rd. Definitely. But I will say I'm pretty excited about this year's State of Green Business Report, lovingly known internally as SOGBY. But I think this year it's sort of, I don't know about you, Joel, but everything seems to have taken on a bit of a different context when you think about the future of some of these big issues as, as one small teaser, I'm looking at some transportation issues and it's like, how does that entire realm of EVs and autonomous vehicles look in this sort of new reality that we've been thrown into um, with the, the presidential election and just a lot of change that's happening right now. So I think it's com- some compelling stuff to consider as we get ready to jump into the new year. Yeah, and one of the things we'll be doing a little bit in both the report in January and the conference in February is is taking a, a little bit of a retrospective look, at least the contextually so, because this will be our 10th, as I said, uh, State of Green Business report, and it will be our ninth Green Biz Forum, um, but it, the first one was just a few weeks after a new administration took hold in February 2009. And so... Mm. Uh, it, just comparing and contrasting and looking at what's happened and where we might be going forward, we'll, whether we make it a, a explicit theme or not will very much be, as you're saying, part of the context of anything we talk about for <laughs> who knows how long, at least the, the next year. Well, we're closing out the year with some great pieces, so let's jump right into the Week in Review.
So amid all this talk about what the future holds for clean energy, fossil fuels, um, just the sustainability world in general, there was a big announcement early this week about Bill Gates and a gaggle of his billionaire buddies launching a new $1 billion breakthrough energy ventures initiative. Uh, Our friends over at Business Green, their editor James Murray, wrote a piece that that we ran this week that focused on the announcement um, that Gates is planning to help accelerate investment in clean energy research research, um, which he's been working on, talking a lot about since COP21 and the Paris Climate Agreement. But this new fund uh, sort of solidifies a lot of that. Yeah, I think it was Margaret Mead who said, never underestimate the power of a gaggle of billionaires to make the change. That's No, that's not quite what she said. But um, <laughs> but this is a case where uh, Bill Gates, along with uh, the, uh, John Doerr, and I think Vinod Kosla and uh, Branson, Bezos. Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, uh, are 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 coming together and and really looking how do you place the kind of bets that need to be placed but and do it in a way that doesn't repeat some of the challenges that the venture capital community has faced over the past well fifteen or so years or more since uh, the word clean tech became uh, near cult status in Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley where the venture capitalists are based and that's the fact that that clean energy. And a lot of these so-called big bets uh, don't always follow or typically follow the the uh, typical VC model where, you know, two, three years of development and then you, you know, sell it for lots and lots of money as it goes public or gets acquired. That these are longer term bets that could take five, 10, even 20 years before they make the uh, the kind of before they're ready for prime time, basically for, for commercialization. And some of those won't make it. But the hope here is that a few, even if it's just one or two that do make it, will, as the name of the ventures suggests, will be breakthrough in how we deliver energy. Like you alluded to, in in terms of sort of the long term scope of some of these investments, you're looking at not only ensuring the reliability of clean energy technologies, but also making sure they're affordable. It's very clear from sort of the early uh, tenor of this announcement that the focus will be on affordability for a global market. So this is a play that goes beyond the U.S. And it also is reaching across sectors, which is interesting. Um, There's a a statement released that said the group will focus on five key areas, electricity, transportation, agriculture, manufacturing, and buildings. It's a broad purview, so it'll be pretty fascinating to see how that translates into individual ventures. Well, it kind of sounds like the tracks of our Verge conference, in fact, are, you <laughs> right. know, pretty closely aligned. Um, but you said you know, that uh, access to energy for people at all income levels, not just in the U.S. In, in fact, in the in the U.S. and in particular in uh, the in rural America, you know, there's a big push, and we're going. This is something we're going to be talking about a lot more and featuring at our events, and even holding possibly some events of our own around this at the idea of financial inclusion for renewable energy, uh, which means how do we make sure, not just make sure, but actively deliver renewable energy products and services to those at lower and middle income uh, in in rural America, in the inner cities of America, and across the spectrum, and yes, in, globally across in the developing world. But this is a domestic issue uh, as well as an uh, international one. And if you look at uh, you know, some of the typical delivery vehicles like the rural electric co-ops, and if you look at a map of rural electric co-ops, of which there are thousands across uh, the United States, 
it kind of looks like the Republican presidential victory map for 2016. And so it's just a really interesting exercise to understand how do we bring uh, renewable energy to the red states and to uh, people who, who are still thinking about sort of the basics around jobs and, and housing security um, and, and make sure that it's not just a plaything for the middle and upper middle class uh, population. So that's going to be a really interesting part of this. And I'm excited that uh, to, to take on those stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm heading home to my native Ohio over winter break. So hoping to check in on a few things there. Um, but I think it also gets to the heart of a couple of columns we had from our regular editors at large, David Crane and John Elkington this week, looking at the evolving issue of the coal wars and sort of the, the future of green jobs as well. Um, it's no secret that uh the coal industry has been a focal point of the presidential election cycle um, with Donald Trump promising to bring back jobs to to some of the states that have been hit hard by the rise of natural gas and other alternatives to coal. Um, But David Crane weighed in on that whole issue uh, with a column this week that was actually pegged, funnily enough, to an appearance on National Geographic's Years of Living Dangerously series, which is kind of a fun hook. Um, But he points to a specific example example uh, of Detroit Edison, which announced that it was shuttering all but one of its remaining coal plants across the lake in Michigan a few weeks ago, saying that the coal era is ending, weakened to be sure by relentless environmental pressure, but mortally wounded, ironically enough, by natural gas, another fossil fuel. So it is sort of this interesting area of, we talk a lot about renewable energy and all that, but um, really when you think about it, the fossil fuel industry is sort of reflective of a lot of shifting trends in energy. Yeah, by the way, if you haven't seen Years of Living Dangerously, I really recommend it. I haven't watched this week's episode uh, that David Crane is in. Uh, I've got it on DVR and I will get to it eventually, maybe over the holidays. Uh, but uh, the other shows have been terrific. Um, I think this season, the second season, is even better than the first. So I really recommend that. But along these lines, we had, as you said, a piece from from John Elkington uh, called Could Green Collar Jobs Go the Way of Coal Miners? It's actually a slightly different take on this, which is really about what's what could uh, artificial intelligence do to green collar jobs? And, you know, we talk about you know, AI and some of these other technologies, robotics, for example, um, of how they're, how they're leading uh, potentially to uh, taking, you know, taking the jobs of taxi drivers and truck drivers and maybe bus drivers uh, through autonomous vehicles. And um, he's saying, you know, a lot of what are, we've been touting as green collar jobs, notably uh, solar panel installation and maintenance, um, are equally... Uh, able to be uh, autom- automated. Um, I mean, there's there's he cites three companies alone: uh, Aerial Power, Ecopia, and Mirakaki. I don't know; it's a Japanese company, and I'm not sure I got that right. But uh, Mirakaki, I think, is uh, at least what it looks like phonetically. That all have automated cleaning and polishing devices for solar arrays. So, you know, you don't have to go up. Uh, if you don't maintain solar arrays, you don't keep them clean, they diminish pretty quickly in terms of their uh, efficiency and how much uh, sunlight they can turn into electricity. So you got to keep them clean. And uh, and you go up there with a the hose and scrub brushes and all that stuff. But there's now devices sort of like your swimming pool, those little things that crawl around the pool 
I've seen, I don't have one, that um, that uh, can clean your pool with no one there. These are similar devices that uh, do that for solar panels. So that was one of the big uh, jobs of the future as solar panel gets uh, uh, reaches scale and maybe that will go away. Yeah, John also joked about setting up a, a new chapter of a green-collar worker preservation society. So I guess that's one option. But I think uh, he and David both get to sort of the point of this, which is that it's. Um, I think the tendency is to talk about sort of job changes and macro trends like automation at a high level. Um, but they both sort of allude to this issue of um, maybe losing sight of individual workers in the conversation in some respects. David laments the fact that um, in series like Years of Living Dangerously or others, you don't actually hear from folks that are working in power plants day to day or those sorts of things. So this does seem like another area where there's a bit of a disconnect between what's happening at the policy and high level and what it's actually like on the ground to be thinking about how people can be retrained and really how you can capture value for the long term. Yeah, I think it also uh, doesn't acknowledge the fact that Jobs change all the time. And you think about, well, those of us who are over 40, I know you're not, but I certainly am, uh, you know, or over 50 or even 60, you know, can certainly think about jobs that existed uh, at the beginning of our careers that don't exist anymore. Uh, there was a, you know, a line when uh, the president-elect flew to Indiana to go to the carrier factory, talk about the 700 or however many jobs that he believes he saved, um, that during that period of time, 6,000 jobs were, were lost in America, just due to natural attrition that uh, jobs are always going away and hopefully more than the number that go away are coming back. And and the, the challenge there is not just to accept that reality, but as you said, Lauren, to to make sure that we're retraining and reskilling these workers so that they are uh, cleaning solar panels today, but operating automated solar panel cleaner devices, machines uh, tomorrow. And who knows, you know, what, what comes after that. And to make sure that we're, you know, that, that as the green economy unfolds, that we don't make those same mistakes that, you know, solar, solar panel cleaners become, you know, tomorrow's buggy whip. Mm hmm. I may not be over 40, but I did start out in newspapers. So I feel some of the pain <laughs> on this issue. But uh, shifting gears, we did have a fun forward looking piece uh, to close out the week from Elisa Ferguson, who's a consultant with the XPRIZE Foundation. She put together a fun piece called You'll Never Guess How CO2 Can Save Us. So when I first read that headline, I was thinking like, okay, we're going to look at something like carbon capture and storage. But she actually dials into a few concrete examples of how companies are looking to harness CO2 in some of these innovative um, production systems. So one example would be the food company Mars, which has committed to switching from artificial colors to natural colors and all their food products. Um, and they actually found that, I guess, the biggest challenge is the color blue. Who knew? Um, so what they've actually found is one promising alternative is spirulina, which is a type of algae that a number of companies are producing actually using carbon dioxide. You've also got examples like Sprint that's been selling iPhone cases made out of plastic from waste CO2. So it sort of spans a range of consumer and industrial uses, um, but interesting stuff to think about looking forward. You talked about concrete examples, and one of those is actually concrete, which is increasingly uh, able to be made from CO2, or at least as a 
as a significant ingredient in that. And we've written about that in the past, but um, you know, up to five percent of of worldwide uh, carbon dioxide emissions are from the manufacturing uh, of of CO two. Uh, that is a very carbon intensive process, and the ability to sequester that CO two in concrete uh, has a lot of promise. It, it, by not only reducing the amount of energy that goes in to making concrete, but also uh, being becoming a carbon sink and actually uh, storing and and for at least for some decades the amount of CO two. So lots of really promising things. And and there's this uh, Center for Carbon Removal that I want to give a plug to. That's based here in Oakland by a good friend Noah Deitch who uh, runs that. And, and I think we've had him on this program and mm-hmm. had him at our conferences. But that they're uh, really on the f- leading edge of this, of really trying to make sure that these technologies get a fair chance to be commercialized and, and ultimately scaled so that they can, uh, you know, play that double role of, of replacing carbon intensive materials while actually sequestering carbon themselves. Very exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. And the good news here is there is some money on the table for people looking to make a dent in this field. Um, XPRIZE is part of a $20 million competition along with NRG and a couple other groups that will be judging applicants on the net value of CO2-based products that they propose. Um, so we'll link to the story in our episode notes, and, and you can go ahead and check that out if you'd like more information. Well, I think we've just closed the loop for this week, uh, going from the Breakthrough Initiative uh, building billions of dollars to money on the table for for carbon removal processes so let's uh, let's move on we ran a story earlier this week called why McDonald's and United Airlines are moving to the city specifically the city of Chicago and here to talk about that story is the author of that piece, Karen Weigert, Senior Fellow Global Cities at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and formerly Chicago's Chief Sustainability Officer. Uh, welcome, Karen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get right to the headline and the answer to that. Why are McDonald's and United Airlines, as well as Mead Johnson, uh, Kraft Heinz, Motorola Solutions, and other companies moving into downtown Chicago from the suburbs? A core of the reason that these cities, uh, these companies are moving into the city and that core of the thing that they've been saying is it's about talent. It's about where are the people that they are trying to recruit and retain and how can they think long term about ensuring that they have the talent base as well as the vibrant environment in which they can work. And so really that's been bringing companies into cities. And for those of us who work both on city economic development as well as on climate, that's a good thing. So what is the sustainability uh, reason here, why are we talking about this through the lens of sustainability? Is, are cities that much better in terms of, of addressing climate change? It's been really interesting to look at cities because when you're in a city, you don't necessarily think, oh, I'm in a, an environmentally friendly place, but it turns out you really are. And the major lens that I'm using when I say that is greenhouse gas emissions per capita. They're actually lower in cities in North America than they are in rural areas or in suburban areas. So every time a company moves downtown and you have more opportunities for people to live nearby, to walk, you're taking advantage of that lower greenhouse gas emission footprint. And it's really driven by transportation where you've got options like walking or train systems or transit in general. 
And then it's really driven by the other part, which is buildings. And living in the city, chances are you're in a multi-unit building, so you're sharing walls, a floor, a ceiling. So that helps retain and, and uh, wrap the building to use less energy. And you're probably also living in a slightly smaller place. So those things combine to, to actually drive down emissions per capita. So coming into the city can be a great move for climate. So what is the city doing to encourage us? Because that's an awful lot of of companies moving into the city over the past few years. And, you know, let, let it be noted that that Chicago was kind of taken to task during the election, uh, at least by the now president-elect, in terms of, you know, basically calling it a war zone. Why, uh, what did the city do to encourage or work with companies to make this happen? Yeah. And there, there are, to acknowledge, there are absolutely some challenges in Chicago uh, as well as in other cities. At the same time, there are some very good things happening in Chicago and also in some other cities. And so companies really have that opportunity to look at what the long-term story needs to be. What Chicago has done consistently has been to try to invest in the kinds of things that make Chicago more livable and more competitive by making it more sustainable. So it's been investing in the transit system so people have better ways to move around town. Chicago has been investing in bike lanes and bike infrastructure. And an interesting thing about that is when Chicago put in the first protected bike lanes, that's the one that has a buffer between where the biker is and where the cars are. That first lane went in right behind the merchandise mart, which is this large, large lead building uh, that has tech incubators in it. So it's where people are increasingly finding new jobs. So the city's been investing in that kind of infrastructure, but it's also been investing in parks in every neighborhood or in larger open spaces so that it can be a vibrant place not just to work, but a vibrant place to live. What's the role of technology here? I imagine that, you know, <clears throat> the electric cars and uh, renewable energy, uh, you know, they're, they're clearly playing a role. But imagine that, that has something to do with why cities have a lower carbon footprint and why people want to live there. There's a, uh, a huge piece for technology in this, layered on top of just you know, good urban design and wonderful outdoor spaces. But when you think about the technologies in a city, so much of the energy is actually used in buildings. And so all of the efficient lighting, all the great HVAC systems, uh, those are critical in here. But at the same time, it's technology that makes it easier to control the energy that you use. And it's also the technology that makes it easier to know how to, to move around in terms of transportation. So it's little things like knowing exactly when the trains are going to come. We've got little apps and trackers that tell you that so that you can hop on. It's those next generations then of technology that are embedded in the buildings. And Chicago has been really, a really interesting place to think about that. Chicago has multiple skyscrapers and large buildings. And uh, several years ago, back when I was in the mayor's office, we launched a program called Retrofit Chicago. And part of that was to work with large buildings. And we now have, I think, 70 buildings that are large, over 100,000 square feet, that have each committed to a 20% reduction in energy use within five years. And the technologies that they're using are fascinating in terms of the actual systems inside the buildings, but also the user interfaces. So they've got better control of these large, large energy users. And so some of the technology is something you as a resident might see walking through a city, and some of it's behind the scenes giving you that great experience when you're indoors. Green Roofs was another big part of that. I know the mayor, uh, Mayor Daly, uh, who I think you worked under, was a, a key advocate of that. And, and Chicago may have had more green roofs on its buildings than any other city or something, certainly close to that. Yeah, I, I love to think of nature as a little piece of this technology. And uh, I, I can take no credit for all the green roofs. Mayor Daly and his his team really helped build that out, both through policies as well as through putting them on City Hall. So I used to work right below a stunning green roof. And I do think in the end, Chicago ended up with more green roofs than any other city in North America. 
So it's a, it's a pretty good record. It's also a wonderful thing in terms of efficiency for the buildings. It's also great for capturing a little rainwater. Uh, but the unsung benefit is it's actually good for biodiversity. And on top of City Hall, there are uh, is actually a beehive, and the bees fly around, and uh, they've got a lot more taste in their honey thanks to the many plants nearby. <laughs> That's a nice metaphor. So I imagine a lot of our listeners uh, in business are they're wondering, well, how can I work more effectively with my city? And what's, to use a McDonald's phrase, the secret sauce that a company you know, can bring to a conversation with a mayor or councilor or chief sustainability officer that might help move that partnership forward faster? Yeah, cities, you know, like companies, are always trying to think of, ahead and think about what's the next thing that will really enhance the experience. In cities, it's obviously for your residents as well as for your visitors and tourists. So what's often really helpful is a concrete thing that that company might be able to do in the city, understanding what they may or may not need from the city, but seeing that as part of the competitiveness, knowing that the more sustainable we make a city, the better it is economically and the better it is for places to live. So the more a company can say, here are the specific things that we want to do, it represents a growth industry, it represents a stronger neighborhood, it's better for your city long term, cities will always pay attention to that. Well, that's a, a great uh, way to close this. A lot going on in cities. It's where people want to be, where millennials want to be, and increasingly where companies want to be. Uh, Karen Weigert, Senior Fellow Global Cities, Chicago Council on Global Affairs and former Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Chicago. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's well known that diversity creates strength in nature, and of course that's true in human systems too, but companies have strived and occasionally struggled with creating diverse workforces. And in the environmental and sustainability communities, that's been a, a big, big challenge. That the uh, As much as we're talking about all species and all people, that this tends to be the domain of, of white middle-class uh, people, at least in the United States. And so we ran a piece this week by uh, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser uh, called The Challenges of Diversity in Sustainability Leadership. It has to do with a, an event put on by a group called Green 2.0. So uh, welcome to the studio, Anya. Pleasure to be back, Joel. First of all, why is diversity even all that important? Diversity is important within the environmental sphere because people of color are statistically more uh, likely to be impacted by climate change. People who live in urban environments, for example, people who live in, uh, you know, in, in countries that are developing nations. And uh, it will also take the perspective of everyone uh, working together to solve the world's biggest and interconnected problems. So tell us, uh, what is Green 2.0 and what was this event about? Green 2.0 is an organization that uh, advocates for racial diversity in the mainstream environmental movement. They mostly work with NGOs and environmental nonprofits, but I think that the lessons of uh, Green 2.0's event called Diversity Derailed can be applied to um, executive uh, environmental positions in businesses and corporations as well. So the group had just put out a report called uh, Diversity Derailed, as you said. What, what was that, that report about? What did it say? 
Diversity Derailed is a report uh, that was written by Professor Maya Beasley in conjunction with Green 2.0, and it looked at the um, role that hiring managers and search firms play in opening the door to more diversity in the environmental uh, environmental sphere. So the report found some pretty disheartening things, um, but it might not be so... Uh, so surprising to people who work in, uh, in the environmental movement and just see that it is pretty homogenous. Um, people of color uh, make up maybe 12 to 16 percent of staff at environmental organizations and agencies. So um, the event was a panel discussion with hiring managers, uh, people who work in executive search firms, and um, they talked about why this happens, and turns out that some of the uh, one of the biggest barriers is right at the door of the uh, the hiring process. So, seventy um, percent of search firms uh, will mandate a diverse slate of candidates for executive positions, but that's only if the, uh, the their client uh, organization mandates that. But um, twenty eight to about forty four percent of NGOs shortlist a diverse slate of candidates as a priority. So there's that discrepancy there. So 12 to 16% of people in these organizations are of color. In some ways, that's more than I would have expected. But I would also imagine that they those tend to be at the lower ranks of those organizations. And that if you go to the senior management and executives leadership, that it's a probably a much smaller number. Yes, that's true. Uh, one of the uh, some of the panelists actually pointed to that, and uh, Patricia Hampton, who's a VP managing partner at nonprofit HR, said that also it's uh, once you reach the the higher ranks of uh, of nonprofit um, leadership that uh, the amount of people of color working there just thins out, unfortunately. So what do we do? Uh, what uh, can search and hiring firms do to to change that equation? Sure. So what hiring managers can do, um, they can push back on their clients. And that means when they see a problem such as the the client um, nonprofit organization not asking for a diverse set of candidates or choosing candidates who are just white, asking them, you know, pointing out that that's happening and bringing in people of color who are qualified candidates. Um, they don't have to have been working in the environmental sphere. For example, Whitney Tome, who is the executive director of Green 2.0, herself didn't work in uh, in environmentalism until after she had a, a legal career, and then she started working in uh, in fisheries management. So here's a clip of her speaking about her own journey. And it's true often. When you get the diverse candidate, you expect them to be a superstar. Above and beyond, potentially, your expectations of others. So how do you ensure that when you're looking for somebody, you don't create this unrealistic expectation, but you also don't compress the timeline so that your search firm or your networks don't have the time to go out and find that diverse candidate? Because it might be somebody who actually doesn't work in the environmental field. Actually, I'm going to tell you a story. My first job was working in oceans and fisheries. The qualifications on the job required one to three years of fisheries management experience. I had none. I almost didn't apply at all because I didn't think I even met the basic benchmark. I delightfully had a boss who took a risk and said, all right, I'm willing to wait figure out if she is the right person and see if she has the skill sets to do it until we to hire her and have her go through the process to make sure the fit is right. But that took intention. 
for her to say, all right, I'm gonna actually take a step back from what I thought I wanted and say, what do I really need? And then I'm going to wait to ensure that this person gets engaged. And so think about how and when you do that or when you don't. Then lastly is the overemphasis on cultural effect, which is it goes back to our organization's commitment to making sure that if we can at least find those core elements of the job, we can decide that we're willing to actually train this person up for three months on the job for some specifics that they probably don't have, but they have a lot of the core pieces. This encapsulates my story. I had the core pieces. I knew nothing about fisheries. But they took a chance in allowing me to get trained up over several months so that then I could actually excel. But it takes intention. It takes the, I'm willing to train someone. I'm willing to put a little bit of effort because in the end, who knows the outcomes of I imagine a lot of this isn't done consciously, that, that even organizations with the best of intentions somehow do things that they're not really aware of that end up uh, screening, inadvertently screening people out. Yes, there is definitely an unconscious hiring bias. And this, uh, this was shown in the Diversity Derailed report as well, that um, people don't necessarily know that they're screening out candidates of color. But uh, it turns out that if there's one candidate of color in the hiring pool, then they're still less likely to get hired than if there were two or more. So here's the uh, managing director of Russell Reynolds Associate talking about the uh, role of the unconscious hiring bias. Uh, where we can be doing better is as we look at the top of our organization, only 31% of our managing directors are women, and so we can do better. Um, we must do better and we will do better. Other things that we do, and I, and I share this not as, um, not just about our firm, because I think it's actually important as it informs the work that we do and the fact that diversity and inclusion and belonging is important to the fabric of the work that we do with our clients. Each of us, as we come to the firm, is trained in unconscious bias. Uh, Dr. Beasley, I listened very closely when you talked about that minimizing impact of the bias rather than the bias itself. I just would love to explore that more with you. Um, and we also recognize that diversity is defined very differently across our globe. We're a large global firm, and in Asia-Pac, diversity does not mean the same thing as it means in Europe, as it means in the US, and we focus on that for ourselves and for our clients. And I would also say that diversity and inclusion is one of three big bets that our firm has circulated around, which means that as I run this for the Americas, we have a head in Asia-Pac, we have a head in Europe, and we have mandated that we have representation from every sector and every practice at our firm that are DNI champions within our practice. So that means it's it's going broad and global. And you know, as for sort of how we work with our clients, I know that we'll get into that more, and I want to pass the, the time to you, but I think it really is having this mindset and this just being a part of the fabric of who we are and what we do that I, I hope makes us successful. 
Well, this is a really interesting topic, one we're going to want to come back to from time to time. Uh, diversity in environmentalism and sustainability is, is, is just a great topic to keep tracking. So thanks for bringing this story to us, Anya, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more. Uh, Anya Hollemeiser, Associate Editor at GreenBiz, thanks for stopping by. Thanks so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week and this year. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find the links to the organizations, the stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Thank you to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at 350 at greenbiz.com. Help us spread the word via Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn about this podcast. Help us grow our audience. And we'll be back January 6th for the 2017 season of Green Biz 350. Lots more events, webcasts, stories coming up from Green Biz. We'll be, love to share all those with you. We'll begin the year with a sort of year in review and year look ahead uh, conversation. And um, until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2017.